Let's turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. And uh, while we're in need of prayer, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and before we begin our study this evening. Father, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy. We, we sing about it all the time. And I do pray that we never take your love for granted because there was a tremendous price that was paid for us to be able to know you and for us to be able to have eternal life and that only through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so blessed, Lord, to have your word to teach us, to lead us and to guide us, to be the light that we need in our lives, the lamp to our feet, the light to our path. And so I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us your wisdom and grace and understanding. And tonight we pray for our dear brothers and sisters, for Roman and for uh, Yvette and their family. We pray for Tim and, and uh, his, his kids and, and Diane's kids and, um, and for Diane herself. Uh, Lord, we, um, we just lift them up to you. We, we, we hurt with them, and yet we rejoice with them. Because when it comes down to it, Lord, our, our faith and our trust have to be in you. They have to be, Lord, solid upon the one who knows us and created us and made us, Lord, what we are today in Christ. And to know, Lord God, that our, our time is in your hand. Each and every one of us, our time is, is right where it needs to be, in, in your hands, not in ours. And so we're thankful for your faithfulness, Lord God. And I pray that in, in this time of our lives, we would be doing everything to honor you and bless you and to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Bless, Lord, these families and all of our families in this church, Lord, as we look to the day of Christ. And Lord, give us your wisdom and grace and understanding now. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea chapter 4. Let me read the first five verses. We may not get there uh, fully tonight. Well, I know, what, I know that we won't. So. But I want to read the first five for context's sake and, and also. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, and killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwelleth therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven. Yea, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Yet, lo, yet let no man strive nor reprove another, for thy people are as they that strive with the priest. And therefore shalt thou fall in the day, and the prophet also shall fall with thee in the night, and I will destroy thy mother. Now the Lord used 
the lives of the Prophet Hosea and his harlot wife, Gomer, as an object lesson to the northern kingdom of Israel, to illustrate the adulterous attitude and actions of Israel toward their God, the one who loved them and chose them to represent him to the world. And just as Gomer had left Hosea to continue her life of prostitution for money, possessions, and the apparent good life, only to have her body used and abused and enslaved until none but evil wanted her, the Lord commanding Hosea to take her back and to love her again, which he did, and buying her back at half the cost of a slave, so would the Lord do for Israel. Just as Gomer's value decreased in the eyes of the world, so had Israel's value decreased to the enemy surrounding them. Gomer's value may have decreased in the eyes of the world, but not in Hosea's eyes. It can likewise be said of Israel's value, decreased in the eyes of the world, but not in the God who loves them. That can be said of the time of Hosea, and it can be said of, the, of, of our time today. For the Israel of today is despised in the eyes of the world. But the Israel of today is loved in the eyes of God because his love toward them is everlasting. That is not because I say it. That's because God's word says it. And his word is always faithful. And his word is always true. It is now in this chapter, chapter 4, that we move away from the personal lives of Hosea and Gomer to the Lord, speaking directly to Israel, making what is considered now as a formal official charge or case against Israel. Yes, you can look at God as the judge here. And he's bringing these formal charges against the people that he calls his own. Now the Hebrew word for controversy that is in verse 1, it is a word rib in the Hebrew, can be translated as a legal strife or contention against. And so from the beginning of the chapter, of this chapter, chapter 4, until the end of the whole prophecy of Hosea, the, the tragedy had, that had been seen in Hosea's home life is now swallowed up by the even greater tragedy of the prophet's homeland. The society in which Hosea lived had, had become extremely permissive. Now take note to the things that have happened then and what's happening in the world today, but especially what's happening in the United States of America today. Just keep this in mind. Because the society in which the prophet lived had become extremely permissive, it had become extremely pornographic, leading to many a broken home in Israel. But the reason for Hosea's marital problems was not to call attention to that fact alone. In the Lord's eternal purposes, Hosea's broken heart was to be a mirror reflecting to the world the broken heart of God. 
The chapter itself begins with this list of sins, a list that has few equals in Scripture, but that would be before the list given by Paul in Romans chapter 1, a list that pre presents God's court case against the human race, which we'll refer to later. So once again, look at verse 1 of Hosea 4 and notice the things that are presented to the people. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth. Notice that it says no truth, that it doesn't say because it, it, it's lacking truth or it's, it has some truth but not enough truth. It's very clear, it says no truth because there is no mercy. The word mercy here is connected strongly to the word love in the Hebrew. There's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. The Lord issued a strong indictment against Israel. Nine specific charges were leveled against the people. The charges were serious, so much so that the people were exhorted to listen very carefully. Shema, hear, hear the word of the Lord. Consider that the Lord himself was the one issuing the charges. And the first charge had to do with the people deceiving and betraying others. Swearing, lying, killing, stealing, and committing adultery, and all these other things we'll, we'll touch upon. But when he says, because there's no truth, in other words, their lives were built on lies or they were building their lives on the lies that, uh, that had no substance in any truth at all. So that charge was about deceiving, it was about betraying others. They were neither true nor faithful to keep their word. They had broken their covenant with God and their word to their neighbors and to their fellow workers. They lacked integrity and they could not be trusted not in business dealings, nor in social life. Truth and faithfulness were scarce throughout the land of Hosea's day. And what nation can stand when her people ignore the truth and refuse to keep their word or to keep their commitments? I can say rather confidently that that is what we're seeing in our world today and more specifically what we're seeing in our own country today, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. But when people are not faithful, they become disloyal, and they become untrustworthy, and they begin to ignore the truth that consequently leads to deceitful behavior, such as adultery and cheating and stealing and betrayal and treason. And the sad thing is, that everyone in Hosea's day appeared to reject the truth and prove unfaithful. I want you to consider this testimony. If we're in a court case, of course, there's always going to be witnesses and testimonies to these very issues. Well, the scriptures, of course, offer great testimony 
to the lives of Israel in their, in their worst times. And especially for men like Jeremiah, the prophet. For in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, it says, And they will deceive everyone his neighbor, and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies, and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. How clearly he's, he's, he's ringing this, this, uh, this sound of, of, of deceit in the people. And, and just remember that Jeremiah's uh, prophecies themselves, would, while, while mostly to, to the uh, southern kingdom of Judah, I mean, it also was affecting uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. But it speaks very strongly as a testimony against Israel for their deceit. And then comes Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 4, another testimony against Israel. And notice that here in verse 1 it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you uh, between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands have def are defiled with blood, and we'll see that later on in, in Hosea. He says, your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice. And once again, these, these words like none, literally it means no one. No one, not one, calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. This is how far the children of Israel had come. They should have known their God. They should have loved their God. They should have respected their God. They should have respected his word that he gave to them, his laws and his statutes that were for their good. But instead, they sought to serve themselves. And they went far from what had been commanded of them. As we'll see later in the book of Exodus chapter 20, the chapter where the, where the commandments, the 10 commandments are presented. Every commandment is broken by the people. But the Apostle Paul also takes aim at this rejection of truth. One example is prophetic. Another example is present in Paul's time and in ours. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians for just a moment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 
This is the prophetic uh, passage, verses 7 through 12, where he speaks of the mystery of for the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's speaking. He, only he who, who, who uh, restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, actually. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, speaking, of course, of, of the beast, of the Antichrist, and shall destroy uh, with the brightness of his, of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. So don't uh, uh, take lightly the word lying there because that's part of this whole scenario here. The issue of lying, lying wonders. And with all deceivableness, there's another word that has to do with deceit, with lies. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they have not, because they, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So it's not that the love of truth was not placed out before them, or presented to them, or proclaimed in any way, shape, or form. Because it was. The fact of the matter is, they received it not. They chose to reject it. And people in the last days are going to do the very same thing. They're going to reject the truth. This is what we see happening in our world today. And for this cause, it goes on to say, God shall send them strong delusion. You're going to be deceiving? Well, you're going to be deluded as well. The word delusion has to do with deceit. To the extent that they will not ever really see what is true any longer. They bought into lies, they're going to see lies all around them. That they should believe a lie, notice that next phrase. And by the way, it's, it's often been translated that they should believe the lie. The lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. A lie that has been layered in greater extent, you know, from the, from the very teachings of, of uh, of, of evolution, because that's a, that's a big lie, according to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then there's the lies of, of, of uh, whether, you know, uh, God is, uh, is really trustworthy himself. Did God really say? That was the devil's lying to Eve. Did God really say these things? Did God really tell you not to eat of that tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of it? You know, throwing doubts. So that, that's the lie. That's part of the lie. There's the lie concerning gender understanding, gender, uh, you know, today. You know, what, what is anybody anymore, you know? Well, God, God said he made male and female. That's what you are. Now the deceit has, has, has changed all of that in the minds of people. That's part of the lie. And you could go on and on and on. It all began in the garden. What the enemy brought in through the serpent. Notice verse 12, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. 
but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And people today are just having a tremendous pleasure in the unrighteousness of men and being unrighteous and staying unrighteous, wanting nothing to do with what is good, what is pure, what is holy. Another passage of scripture is more present in Paul's time, and, and, but it's also present in our time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, where he says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing. Now, one of the things that are mentioned in our text in Hosea is that of, the, of having no knowledge of God. So notice how this is connected. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof come envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself, Paul says. So that is a, a, a somewhat of a foundational uh, section here for all the rest of the charges that God is going to make against the children of Israel. The second charge the Lord made against Israel was that the people showed no mercy. They showed no love toward each other or toward others. That's still in verse 1. The needy, which consisted of orphans, of widows, of widowers, the sick, the elderly, the poor, all of these were ignored and they were neglected during that time that the prophet had to go and tell them that this is what they were doing. Few people felt compassion, and few were still showed mercy to those in need. And this is usually the case when people become self-centered, focusing on fulfilling their own lusts and desires. You know, there are a lot of people that say, well, you know, I give a little bit, I give here, I give there, if I see, you know, and they're possibly quite wealthy, let's say. And so whatever they give usually is just a little token thing that doesn't ever really affect them anywhere down the line. Because that's how shrewd people are. I mean, you know, they're, they're shrewd enough to want to keep their own riches and keep, keep them growing. And, you know, if he has a little bit extra, well, we'll give a little bit over here, a little bit over there, some telethon here, some telethon there. But... when they don't act upon what they see. And this is something that the Word of God teaches us. When we see someone in hurt, in, in a time of hurt, in a time of need, we're to respond. A craving flooded the hearts of people. A craving for more. A craving for more and more possessions. A craving for fleshly pleasures. And they became consumed with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's exactly what John wrote about in 1 John 2.16. As a matter of fact, that's what 
that verse is all about. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But sadly, selfish desires and personal interests dominated people's lives. Even in that time, and more and more as they got away from God and as they got away from His Word. In fact, in Proverbs 21, verse 13, it says, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he, shall, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Notice that. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Now, that crying's hurt. <laughs> That's okay. Download the room. Consider the indictment. Consider the indictment to the shepherds of Israel by the Lord through Jeremiah. And I, sh and I should say Ezekiel. I lost my focus here. But the indictment to the shepherds of Israel by Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 4. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should, they, should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat, you clothe you with the wool, you kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. Now much of that, of course, has to do with the shepherds of Israel needing to feed the flock the Word of God. But it also was a, a, an indictment against them for not feeding them and caring for them and their needs. If the needs revealed themselves in a, in a great way, they, they were a community that needed to support one another in those things. This is the way the church is also structured, to care for one another and for the needs within the body of Christ. This is how tightly knit the church was in the time of the book of Acts, especially after Pentecost. And as the church was starting to form, of course, many, many people were coming, but uh, it got to the point that they needed to care more and more for the people. But when the shepherds were more concerned for themselves, this is when things began to turn rotten for the people, for all of them. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, James writes, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is, uh, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, O depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? They're naked, they're destitute of food, they have great need. And you just say to them, well, be, be warm, be filled. Go in peace. That does not meet any need whatsoever. Later on in James 4.17, and if you connect what is said in James chapter 2 all the way through for chapter 4, uh, all of these things connect to this one verse that say, uh, this verse that says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So when nothing is acted upon, because of selfishness, because of selfish desires, because we don't want to get involved. And yet, it, it speaks distinctly about brothers or sisters. So those would be those around the church. Those would be those that we would serve first. And it's not to say that we don't serve those outside of the church. We should, and we do many times. But the point is, if we know to do good and we don't do it, to him, it is sin. But Paul made this clear statement in Romans chapter 13. And listen to what he says. In Romans 13 verses 8 through 10. He said, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So it comes down then to what Jesus himself taught us, taught his disciples who have taught every other disciple to come down to us to say, love one another as I have loved you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as we've been studying the Gospel of John, Jesus knelt down at the very feet of every one of his disciples. He had taken off his outer garment and he girded himself as a slave and he washed the feet of his disciples. Every one of them. Even Judas. And he said, as you have seen me do, so must you do. Paul goes on to say, for this for this, and he says, just consider this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Lying, in other words. Thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Now, have you ever just meditated upon that particular phrase? Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Love isn't going to hurt your neighbor. 
Love isn't going to slap your neighbor in the face. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So they had become deceitful. They had become merciless, unloving. And then the third charge made by the Lord against Israel had to do with their abandoning God and the knowledge of God. When the scriptures speak of knowing God, it doesn't mean knowing just facts about God, right? When we, tell, when we go out to tell people about Jesus, you know, we don't want to tell them facts just so that they, you know, these facts about Jesus, you know, get, you know, do, you, do you know about Jesus? That's not what we ask. You know what we ask? We ask, do you know Jesus? It's like asking, do you know your neighbor next door? I mean, do you know him? Well, I know a lot about him. <laughs> I didn't ask you that. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? That's the question. So Scripture says, when it speaks of knowing God, it, do, it doesn't mean just knowing facts about him. There are people that know a lot of facts about Jesus that are not going to spend their eternity with him. That's, that's a truth that we need to come to grips with. We don't teach the word of God here so that you can get, you know, build up a lot of facts about. Uh, we, we want you to hear the word of God, know the word of God so that you can have that personal relationship with the Lord and know more about him as you get to know him more and more and surrender your life to him have an intimate relationship with him that's what love is all about isn't it it means knowing God personally it means knowing God intimately I, I know that some people have thought that you know well maybe in the Old Testament you know they, they only needed to know about God because he was so you know he was God and and, and, and they were just his people and they needed to be his people uh, uh, corporately and, and whatnot. No, I mean, it, it's still the same today as it was then and it was then as it is today. God wanted a personal relationship with his people. He wanted people to trust him, to trust him fully, to love him. I mean, isn't this what the whole cry of, 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 of the Shema was? You know, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, our, 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 the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You shall love him. Well, you don't love from a distance. And God made himself available. And even though he met only with certain people at, at, at times, Still, he would have met with anyone who would have trusted him with all of his heart. As Moses trusted him, as Joshua trusted him. Knowing God means establishing a personal relationship with God. It means to walk with him. It means to fellowship with him through the, through the means of prayer. To listen to him through the study of his word. 
To have that kind of relationship with a God who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. The tragedy was that there was no personal knowledge of God throughout the whole land of Israel. No one recognized or accepted the Lord or had a personal relationship with Him. And one of the saddest things that we see in Scripture, you could go all the way back to the, the time of, of uh, the generation that came out of the wilderness experience. It was a young generation that went into the promised land because everybody else kind of died in the, in the 40 years of the wilderness. But those who went in, went in by faith, and yet a generation to follow. We are told in the book of Judges that the next generation did not know God. And what happened? What happened? People get busy, people get you know, caught up in things and, and their own lives and they forgot about God. Forgot to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They forgot to stay in the Word so that the children could see them in the Word. Generations have grown up today, many of them out of churches, out of, 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 of Christian backgrounds, many of them today have grown up totally apart from God, totally apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. What can we say? What will we stand before God and declare unto Him? So that tragedy was there was no personal knowledge of God throughout the whole land of Israel. No one recognized or accepted the Lord or had a personal relationship with Him. Whenever they did any kind of, any form of worship, of course, everything in the northern kingdom of Israel had, had, had already moved toward the, the worship of other gods, the worship of the Baals. At the same time, they were saying they were worshiping the God of Israel. And that was the fact that they were deceived themselves into thinking those things. And they had had a, an example of that earlier on that wasn't a good thing to do. In the time of the wilderness when Moses was getting the law from the Lord and he had spent all this time with the Lord with the law and the, the tablets and, and, and the people were getting antsy and they said, well, where is Moses? Maybe he's dead now. He's not coming down with the law anymore. So they went and dragged Aaron, his brother, out and said, you know, because of his uh, craft of, 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 of making you know, things. They went and grabbed them and said, look, we're going to gather all this gold and we want you to make a golden calf. Make this calf because we want to worship God. They were saying that calf was God. And yet the law was very clear. Thou shalt make no graven image. So the lesson was, of course, that what happened after that? A line was drawn in the sand, as it were. And all those who caused the problem were, uh, they were on the wrong, light of the wrong side of the line. And many of them perished for that unbelief, for that deceit.
Once again, we look, now we look to the prophet uh, Jeremiah <laughs> once, once more. We look to the prophet Jeremiah to confirm as a witness to this tragic attitude by the people of Israel. Look at Jeremiah 4, verse 22. It says, for my people is foolish. They have not known me. For God to say, my people are foolish. <laughs> they have not known me. This is they, they've had every opportunity to know me. And then he says this, they are sottish children. Sottish children. Now that's an old, old English word. But the Hebrew word for sottish means foolishly silly and stupid. That's exactly what it means, folks. So if anybody asks you, I don't ever see the word stupid in the Bible. Well, there, here it is, right here. They're stupid. That comes from the Lord. They are sottish, which means they're foolishly silly. They are stupid children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. Which brings to mind this understanding that if you fear the Lord, as the scripture teaches us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, you know, the, that, that reverence and respect that we are supposed to have toward our God and toward our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To have that kind of love and honor and respect to our Lord. It, it, when, when it is lacking, it opens the door to doing wicked things. It brings people to the, to the understanding that, you know, well, you know, God's cool, man. God's all right. I mean, we, you know, we, we can, you know, he'll forgive us. That's the wrong attitude to have before a holy God. A wrong attitude to have before a holy God. Because listen to what, he's, listen to what Jeremiah writes here. These are the words of God. My people, they're wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Wise to do good. I'm sorry, wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Which says that when we fear the Lord and respect the Lord with all of our heart, then we're never going to cross that line. We may be tempted at times, but we never cross that line. Now, three times in three passages in the Gospel of John, each one having three verses in those passages, Jesus makes the same indictment towards the religious leaders of Israel during his earthly ministry. One is direct, the other two are indirect, but nonetheless, they really are aimed at, at the religious leaders of Israel. John chapter 8, look at verses 17 through 19. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that, bears, that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? 
Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. They were completely ignorant to the fact that Jesus, who showed himself, proved himself, spoke with the authority of God, spoke with the authority of the kingdom of God, about the kingdom of God, about himself, about his Father, who healed the sick, who raised the dead, who showed signs that he was, in fact, the Messiah of Israel. They did not notice him. The only thing that they noticed was, according to their view of Scripture, Jesus was a blasphemer and needed to be eliminated. But the only reason for that was because he had exposed them for what they really were. In John chapter 15, now remember this is when he's speaking to his disciples during that night uh, of the Passover supper. He said, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. They don't even know the God that they say that they serve. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. In other words, if I had shown up, well, you know, they would have never known how far they were from God. But now they have no cloak for their sin. They, they have no excuse. He that hateth me hateth my father also. Do you know why that is? Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And you missed me. And you missed him. And then in John 16, verses 1, 1 through 3, These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Do you know that that verse is not just for the time of, of the disciples? Uh, having to deal with the Jewish religious leaders? But that time is for today. There are some people who have uh, these, these thoughts, or even some religions today, and we know which one is the most savage of them all, that say that uh, you know, to, to eliminate Christians today is, is, is doing God's service. But the sad thing is that there are people who are Christian in name only, that look at those of us who believe and trust in the whole of, of God's word, that truly believe that, that every word is true, that we believe Jesus is coming soon. We believe we're in, living in the end times. We believe that people need to come to know the Lord and Savior before it's too late. All of these things, they, they, they don't do that. They, 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 they play church or they play some kind of churchianity. Or they, play, they do something different than what the word of God says. But you know what? There's coming a time and it's predicted in scripture that there will be quote unquote Christian versus the true Christian. In fact, you know, these, um, these groups of people that argue against, uh, uh, you know, like the ACLU and then there's this other particular group and I can't remember people for uh, whatever, you know, they, uh, it's, it's, actually, it's, it's actually led by somebody who's a quote unquote Christian minister you know, that uh, come against people who preach the gospel openly. 
Someone who calls himself a minister tells him we're well, not supposed to preach the gospel openly in our country. <laughs> Duh, you know. What is that telling you? That one day it'll get so bad that they think that they're doing God's service by getting rid of us. But notice what it says in verse 3. And these things they will do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. You see the importance of knowing Jesus, of really knowing Jesus? The fourth charge is found in verse 2 of our text. Hosea 4, verse 2, by swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood touches blood. Literally, that means bloodshed upon bloodshed. The people fill the land with cursing, lies, and murder. Cursing or swearing, by the way, was a violation of the third commandment. We are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. The name of the Lord thy God in vain. Cursing was, was a, a violation of the third commandment. Swearing was a violation of the third commandment, which forbids taking the name of the Lord God in vain. No one should ever misuse the name of God in any way anyway, right? <laughs> no one should misuse it in any way anyway. Whether speaking profanely, giving false testimony, or making deceitful oaths. This is the reason why the scripture says, you know, our yeas need to be yeas and our nays need to be nays. But the language isn't simple anymore. People have learned how to twist words and twist language so that, you know, what, what sounds, well, it kind of sounds right, but you know, it, 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 it brings only confusion. And things become more difficult. There were times when covenants were made with the shaking of a hand. Go back all the way to the, book, to the person of Abraham and, and you know, covenant was made by, by word. The Lord, as judge, pointed to his law, the Ten Commandments, reminding the people of how they violated his law by pronouncing curses, by telling lies, by murdering, by stealing and committing adultery. As a result, they had brought suffering to themselves, to the land, and even to the animals. That's verses 3 through 5. We haven't got there yet. We'll get there next time. God's covenant promise was that he would bless the land if the people obeyed him. He would bless the land if the people obeyed him, but that he would punish the land if they disobeyed. Now that's very clear if you read Leviticus 26. You want to write this down, look it up later. Leviticus 26, and also read Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Because this is where those uh, particular promises were. He would bless the land if the people obeyed. He would punish the land if they disobeyed. So always remember that. Always remember that the land belongs to God. The land belongs to God. In, in, in particular, the land of Israel belongs to God. Leviticus 25 verse 23 says, the land shall not be sold forever for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So what's the big deal then? 
about all of these people in the United Nations and in other uh, you know, organizations that are mostly terrorists, but you know, all of these cries you know, that there needs to be a two-state solution. If people understood what that meant, it means to divide the land of Israel, to take it away from the people that God gave it to and give it to others who did not deserve it and don't deserve it because they're not really a people. There is no true Palestinian people. They're made up of all other kinds of Arab uh, 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 connections, but there is no Palestinian people. So this, this very fact uh, that is happening today, all these cries for, for a two-state solution, which I heard somebody from El Paso that's running for Senate say that the other day on the radio. I, I would avoid that with a plague because that is against God's law and God's word. And people that have gone into that kind of agreement or desire to do, um, they face consequences. They do. I mean, pure and simple. This is what happens when we go contrary to what God says. And God says, the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And what he's saying is with his own people, he says, I'm putting you there, but it's my land. But the sins of the people polluted the land, as the Lord made clear to them in Leviticus 18. I'm going to do this quickly because we don't have too much time. But Leviticus 18, verses 25 through 28, this is what it says. The land is defiled, and therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations neither any of your own nation, nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. For all these abominations have the men of the land done, which were before you, and the land is defiled. But the land spew not you out also where you, when you defile it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. Leviticus 26, verses 32 and 33. And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein, shall be astonished at it, and I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste." Now God said, I will protect you, I will keep you, I will guard you, but I want you to trust me, and I want you to believe in me, and I want you to obey me. And the Lord wasn't playing around. The Lord had commanded these things. And listen to what he commanded. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16. Thou shalt not kill, which by the way, the word kill there literally, mean, literally is the word murder. There are two different words in the Hebrew for kill and, and murder, but the English is kill but it literally means murder, to take another's life uh, unnecessarily. Thou shalt not kill or murder, Exodus 20, verse 13. Thou shalt not commit adultery, Exodus 20, 14. Thou shalt not steal, Exodus 20, 15. All of those are found in this text, 
in Hosea. But before we conclude, let's add the fifth charge, since it's already been mentioned. The people were guilty of stealing. Thou shalt not steal. They were guilty of stealing and committing adultery, not to mention bloodshed upon bloodshed. So consider a couple of passages in the book of Romans. And this is what we're going to close with here in just a moment. But in Romans chapter 1, and, and I would say, you know, I always say this, I, I can't read the whole thing to you, but it, the whole passage itself is, is so powerful in what, what God is saying uh, in, uh, to the church about those who are uh, actually pushing away the truth of the Word of God. He says in verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity. By the way, malignity means injurious or mis mischievous, an evil character. Whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, which means a truce breaker, unmerciful. By the way, implacable, truce breakers, uh, we, we see them all the time whenever, you know, some other, you know, uh, world leader tries to get Israel and the Palestinians together. You know, and the Palestinians go in there like Yasser Arafat used to do, and, you know, the next day they break the truth. They were never trustworthy for that. That's implacable, unmerciful. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And people today actually cheer on evil. They cheer on people who do things that are, that are wicked. I, I, I mean, this is a... This is a topsy-turvy world. I mean, it is just upside down. Is it any wonder that in the time of the disciples, when they were going out and preaching the gospel and, and I mean, really changing things in, in, in many countries and nations and peoples, that they were, they were said, these people who are turning the world upside down, they were talking about the Christians. But the Christians were turning the world right side up because the wicked people had turned everything upside down from the way God had intended it to be. So the other passage is Romans 13, verses 7 through 11, because this brings us back to what we spoke of earlier. Romans 13, 7, render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, in other words, taxes, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to what? To love one another, for he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. Now we go on from there and it says, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. I know I read this earlier, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting down to the last part here. Thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. It bears importance to read it twice to read it twice in, in the context of what we've been seeing before, what we are to render to people. So let's ask this question as we prepare to leave this evening. If we look 
at our own country today, if we look at the United States of America, is it not following in the footsteps of Israel spiritually? Is it not following in the footsteps of Israel spiritually? Because the charges mentioned in this text could be our very own. All the charges in this text could be our very own as a nation. And remember that nations will be judged by God. I've said this time and time again. Nations are important to God. In fact, and I have to say that, I'm not saying this politically, I'm saying this spiritually. But God created nations, and to every nation he gave borders. Borders for their protection. Borders to make distinctions. And the thing that we see happening today, and, you know, and we need to stand on the, on the proper side of things when it comes to taking care of people, yes. Taking care of the issues, yes. That, that where people need, we need to be there. But the point of the matter is that when so much stuff is being said and, and, and made about, uh, you know, about wanting no borders, wanting, you know, just everybody can welcome, just welcome everybody in, that, that goes against the scriptures. And it goes against the reason why God created nations and a people. I mean, look at, look at, the, look at the statements in the scriptures when it comes down to who's going to be in heaven? People from every nation, tribe, tongue, and, and, and so on. We're not one until we're one in Christ. We are not one until we are one in Jesus Christ. From every nation, tribe, and people. So the charges mentioned in this text could be our own. The indictments are only fruit, are, are only the fruit of that which is born out of no longer seeking the truth, no longer showing mercy, no longer having and no longer wanting the knowledge of God in our lives as a nation. I believe that's where we are today in the United States. Though there is still a, a remnant of people who will stand on God's word, a remnant of people who will pray for God's people and pray for a nation that is sorely in, in, in grave sin. The Lord is coming quickly, folks. We need to remember that. The Lord is coming quickly. People need to heed the Lord and heed his word. People need to repent and people need to turn back to God. And if there's anything that will remind us to pray for this country, it's Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That's a promise that God has made. Even though that was directed toward Israel, it is directed toward any people that will pray for their nation in the time of great uh, distress, which this nation truly is today.